The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Memes are everywhere, but the term was coined only a few decades ago by Richard Dawkins to describe ideas and cultural behaviour that can be passed on from one individual to another. Dawkins argued that memes are a stage in evolution, and just as humans are carriers for genes, we are also carriers of memes. Is meme theory then an exciting new framework that moves evolution forward? Or is the very idea of a meme a misguided and reductionist account of what it is to be human. Joining us to debate mimetics are post-postmodern philosopher Hilary Lawson, Professor of Ethics and Technology Joanna Bryson, and Professor of Philosophy Massimo Piglucci. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Guinness Taylor. So, is meme theory an exciting new framework that moves evolution forward to account for concepts and culture? Or is the very idea of a meme a misguided and reductionist account of what it is to be human? And is meme theory itself a meme and its successor <laughs> function of evolution and independent of, it, of its truth? So, to our wonderful speakers. Uh, Massimo Pilucci is a philosopher, uh, philosophy professor, excuse me, and a philosopher at the City College of New York and former co-host of the Rationally Speaking podcast. His research interests uh, include the philosophy of science and the philosophy of biology. Joanna Bryson is a professor of ethics and technology at Hertie School in Berlin and is a founding member for the Center uh, for Digital Governance. Currently, she advises NGOs, government, and transnational agencies on all matters AI, ethics, and technology. Since July 2020, Professor Bryson has been one of the nine experts nominated by Germany to the Global Partnership of Artificial Intelligence. Hilary Lawson is a postmodern philosopher and a renowned critic of philosophical realism. He is best known for his work on reflexivity and his theory for closure, which puts forward a non-realist metaphysics arguing to close the openness of the world with our thought and language. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw out a question, and each one of our great speakers is going to have three minutes to address the question. So this, the question to start us all off, Massimo, if you'd like to step up to the plate, as it were, is, is meme theory an exciting new framework to understand our culture? and how we think. No. 
Amazing. Uh, That's it. Thank so that, you, everybody. All right, fine. Let me, let me elaborate a little bit about it. Uh, so meme theory, first of all, it's not even a theory. That's, that's part of the problem. Uh, it is an analogy. As you said, it came out originally out of uh, the selfish gene, you know, Richard Dawkins, uh, an analogy with the selfish gene. Uh, Dawkins was already criticized by biologists for using the selfish gene as an analogy, let alone for then using an analogy on an analogy. Uh, even Dawkins, actually, a few years later, disavowed uh, his interest in memes. He said, he admitted that was just a way to explain, make a point about genes, really. Uh, he didn't really mean that as a serious theory. Uh, some people did take it up as a serious theory for, for some time, as a uh, promising new way of uh, thinking about what? About cultural evolution. That, that is really what, what it is about. The memes are supposed to be units of cultural evolution in analogy to genes, which are supposed to be units of uh, you know, ev biological evolution. But the fact is that after you know, a couple of books in a journal of memetics that was uh, in print for a few years, actually electronic, for a few years, uh, the whole thing just uh, turned out into nothing. Uh, nobody's publishing things about memes anymore. Uh, the journal of genetics folded many years ago because they didn't have anything else to say. Uh, so, as far as uh, philosophy of, bio of uh, science is concerned, uh, memetics uh, is what is called a degenerate research program. Degenerate, in this case, doesn't mean that it's morally objectionable. It just means that it's not leading anywhere. Uh, one of the most uh, influential philosophers of science of the last century, Imre Lakatos, thought out of, of ways of basically uh, assessing whether a scientific theory is uh, useful or not, whether it is, in fact, something that should be pursued or not. And one of his central ideas was that a research program has to be generative, that is, it has to keep producing ideas, ex uh, experiments, uh, results. If it doesn't do that, if it stops doing that, then the idea itself may even be, you know, valuable, they may, they may be, it may be right even, but if it's not leading anywhere for a sustained period of time, then we should probably think about other ways of doing it. In the case of cultural evolution, there are other ways of doing it. Uh, people have been working on cultural evolution for, for quite some time. There are different approaches uh, that have been proposed, alternate, alternative to memetics, one of which is referred to as the dual theory of cultural evolution, which actually uh, uh, tries to merge our insights from evolutionary biology uh, into the study of cultural evolution by talking about gene-cultural gene co-evolution. Uh, that one has actually been far more productive. There is a lot of people that are working on it. Interesting. Okay. Joanna, what do you think? Is it exciting? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't say it's new. And, and so, I, and I wouldn't entirely disagree with what Mazumal just said. So let, let me uh, throw in a little bit more history. Uh, so the point of thinking about the selfish gene was that um, we, people couldn't explain things like altruism. They couldn't explain why bees didn't all have uh, baby bees, that some of them just would defend the nest. Uh, they couldn't explain things like cooperation. And so the idea is that there's something that replicates, right? And that's what we call the gene. There's something that is perfectly replicating. I don't know if you have children, but you might have noticed they're not identical to you, right? So you're not the replicator, you're the vehicle of lots of replicators. And so you have obligations, um, and, and the, there's like, you know, various things have been sort of carried out about this, that, you're, that you'll do certain things for your cousins and whatever, de depending on your genetic relatedness to them, you're more likely to sacrifice. So for example, with the bees, 
every single uh, insect like that, they're called these social insects that, that really uh, sacrifice their own ability to breed, they all uh, pass through a point where their parents were perfectly um, faithful to each other, which these are insects, so like parts broke off. They were perfectly, perfectly faithful, and that meant they were just as related to their siblings as they were to their offspring, so it was a viable way for evolution to create this very, very uh, cooperative thing. So, memes. Now, the thing about genes is you might think, oh, we know them, they're DNA. No, it's not like you replicate your entire DNA, DNA stream, that would be replicating you. You, you chop, it, chop it up, and there isn't really a strong understanding of what a gene is. So the parts of the things that get replicated can even be overlapping with each other, okay? So, to the extent that a gene is a thing, I think a meme is also a thing. It's also useful to talk about things like, it seems that with people, unlike most other species, we're willing to also sacrifice for those who have the same ideas we have that we don't necessarily share the same genes with. And so it may be a, a point where it's useful to talk about uh, sharing uh, mimetic information like we share genetic information. So for me as a scientist, I have found this a useful metaphor, and in fact, I was at the conference where Bruce Edmonds, I hadn't thought about this for years, where he announced that he was shutting down a very silly journal that spent a lot of time looking for the meme, like I was just talking about looking for the DNA, that it was mostly papers about looking for the meme in, uh, in, in email, uh, and, 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 and yeah, in, in spam emails. That was like most of the papers. And, and so he announced that the entire thing was over, and, he, and, and at that very meeting, myself and several other people gave these great papers about actual cultural evolution and talking about information transmission and models. You know, we, we had uh, agent-based models mostly. That was the kind of meeting it was. Um, but I just felt so frustrated that this, this journal had captured what, it, what memetics was supposed to mean, done a bad job with it, and then somewhat heroically was at least you know, stabbed by the editor and said, okay, I've given up on this dumb idea. But, but the word should not have been thrown out with that, with that bathwater. Interesting. Okay, Hillary? Well, we, uh, we usually think of our ideas and concepts, don't we, as things that we have. You, know, you have an idea, somebody else has an idea, and uh, that's the way we think about it. We have the ideas. And Dawkins's meme thought, or I take the point he never elaborates this as a full theory, but I think it's in The Blind Watchmaker, actually. Uh, he, he, he inverts that on its head. And he says, uh, we are the carriers for our ideas. We don't have the ideas. The ideas, as it were, just have us in a sense. And, and to think of the, the success of concepts as being somehow independent, well, so they, they, they are competing uh, through us as vehicles, but the, it's the concepts that are competing, not, not us that are competing. So this idea of Dawkins is an extension, as has been said by the other panelists, of his same sort of thought that he did with gene theory. So instead of saying that we compete as species, one species with another, he turns it on its head and said it's the genes that are competing, and we are just the vehicles for those genes. Now, I'm not a geneticist, uh, and I'm probably, therefore, not in a very good position to judge just how effective this is as a tool. 
and uh, Joanna, I'm sure, is in a much better <laughs> position to make that judgment. But uh, it's, a, it's an exciting shift in thinking about what might be going on in relation to genes or memes and ourselves by turning it the other way around, and it has uh, explanatory power in doing that. However, I think one of the reasons that I think that Dawkins may have given up on promoting his own account of memes is because it changes our relationship to truth. Because instead of thinking that truth is the outcome of what we think about, what do we get it right, truth seems to be an outcome of the evolutionary competition between the memes. And so Dawkins doesn't have any obvious way of trying to show that meme theory is itself true. If it's not adopted by the species, then it is no longer true. And I think the same is true of evolutionary theory as a whole. I would argue that evolutionary theory as a whole is caught in this story, that it's a story about evolution, about how we are, where we get, where we get to, but that story involves the notion that um, uh, we might get to somewhere which is not a true description of the world. And, and there's the rub. Now, I would, if Dawkins was here, he would probably not be very comfortable with the idea of giving up on objective truth because yeah. he wants to attack uh, religious folk who believe in God and he just thinks that's wrong. However, I would encourage him, if he was on the panel, to say, you can keep your meme theory and your gene theory, uh, but you just have to give up on the idea that they are discovering something ultimate about the world and instead see them as a powerful explanatory tool for understanding how things might work and for us being able to intervene and improve our lives and our, our way of understanding species. So I think that Dawkins can have it both ways. He can have the meme theory, but he's got to give up the idea that he might have discovered the truth in the process of presenting it. I, I like that. I think that Dawkins actually cannot have it either way. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that, that I uh, love about Dawkins is that he once said uh, that he's a son of the Alignment, and he's, you know, he's very proud of being a son of the Alignment. And my comment was, yeah, so was I when I was 18. But then you grow up, and, and you realize that that's Absolute truths are not something that human beings can actually achieve, except in very trivial cases. Yes, it's true that there's this four people out here, as far as I know, because it could be hallucinating, right? Dawkins uh, is back here as well. That's right, Dawkins <laughs> is here as well, etc. Um, I think that most scientists, certainly most philosophers of science, are not realists in that hard, sort of naive sense that, that Dawkins is. Um, we think that, we, that scientific theories are models. Yes, there are models probably of a reality out there. I don't, I don't really have very you know, reasonable uh, argument against the existence of reality out there, but we do not access that reality directly. We only have models, and these models are competing with each other in the sense of being more or less useful for us in order to understand that reality. And so my contention about memetics is that actually among the available models of cultural evolution, that isn't particularly effective and you know, particularly useful as a model. Of course, we disagree uh, on that particular point. But if we agree that it is a model, um, then in a sense, it isn't really that the means are controlling whatever they are, are controlling anything. It's, this is an issue of we as human beings have made this, this you know, interested for some reason in figuring out how the world works. And those are our attempts, always partial, always incomplete, at finding out about the world. 
that's interesting. Can I, can I ask a question? Yeah, of course, okay. please. Because the, uh, the, um, I am a natural scientist. I don't have a lot of training in philosophy. Uh, and, but, and, I, and one of the big differences is philosophers read more than natural scientists, at least more philosophy. Uh, I, I was of the opinion that, that uh, you know, memetics was introduced in the, uh, the selfish gene, and then Susan Blackmore kind of ran out with these ideas. So the first two-thirds of her books on it are amazing. It's a lot of people have trouble really thinking from the perspective of something else that, 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 that could be really be dual replicator theory. There's actually two different things that are, that are co-evolving now. Um, but I hadn't heard that the blind watchmaker was in there too. And I sort of felt that part of the reason that Dawkins had moved away from this, well, partly because he also gets into trouble with just multi-level selection anyway. It does. So, so the, the, I said the first two thirds. The last third of Susan Blackmore's wonderful, interesting book is this weird Buddhist thing that says that consciousness is a virus that's invaded our bodies and we need to all try to become less conscious and we'd be more human then. Um, and, and I think that that is what some people have now started identifying memetics with, this idea that it's this disease that can make you do bad things. And of course, Dawkins was very much about that with September 11th and, and that like what kind of a disease could make you fly an airplane into a building, right? Uh, but I, the idea, both genes and memes, you would expect it to be very unlikely that a species would ex exist for a long time if this wasn't good for the overall lineage, at least, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the, your family and, the, and the, there being more of something like you in the future. It may not be good for you, an individual, if you become really angry and go fight in a war and die, but it might be very good for the rest of your, uh, your, your family. And so I would expect that I, that was part of where he got into, there may have been some kind of problems in there. But anyway, I don't know, uh, I, and I had no idea this was in the, so did he go further down that rabbit hole, or is it, is it Susan Blackmore's fault? And incidentally, Science is not just about like, even if it turns out that Dawkins is completely wrong, it could still be that some part of his ideas were useful and we could go off and do something good with them. So it's, this is not religion. This is, <laughs> this is the point at which in the debate I realize that there's like memes that I'm thinking about where the viruses, I'm just like obsessively sending them to everyone I know via social media versus this idea of the memes of like an idea and a framework of thinking about it, okay? So you're talking about whether or not this sort of way of thinking is useful and whether that was why he moved away from it because of the Susan Blackmore invasion, is that right? Sort of, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Do we have an answer? I don't know about an answer, uh, I, I have a comment. Uh, yes, okay. uh, I think your, your history is, is correct there. And in fact, the contribution of uh, Susan Blackmore is, is very important. To me, again, it's an interesting observation that Susan herself then gave up on the whole, on the whole idea. So, um, and, and one of the things that is interesting to me is that we have to remember that this is in the context of the study of cultural evolution, and cultural evolution is an important field of study. It is also a field of study where we still are way behind what genetics uh, has done for a number of reasons. Uh, uh, some people say that that's because the field is recent. It's not really, because arguably cultural evolution studies were started by Darwin just at the same time that he started talking and, and writing about uh, you know, evolutionary biology. Uh, but it has lagged behind significantly in terms of insights, in terms, especially in terms of experimental uh, you know, evidence. And so it has come really to the fore. It's become, becoming an organic discipline only in the last 15, 20 years maybe. 
so we're really looking at something at a field that is very young, comparatively speaking. And so the fact that there are different ideas being thrown around and some of which may or may not be successful over the next few years, it's completely understandable. This is what happens in the history of science in general. So, I mean, I, I have a question in that case. So, I mean, you know, if it were widely accepted, what impact would that have on the way we understand ourselves and our culture? And also, I mean, you, you brought up genetics in this context, but experimentation is really important. So also, how do you experiment with a meme? Is that possible? I assume so. Okay. Uh, well, okay, great. Um, great questions. So I think, let me give you another example of why I think memetics is a useful metaphor. So one of the things that we can think about, and like remember, we're still having trouble really getting detailed about genes, right? But with genes, for most species, we know there's like one or two parents that, that are they're most, let's talk about mammals, so usually two parents, right? Um, and we still have trouble figuring out exactly what came from what. Well, we have some ideas, right? But whether it's a gene. With memes, you can be gathering ideas over a long period of time, and you can be giving more weight to some than others, like your, your people that you find more prestigious or more like yourself. Um, so you, when you do, you're, take, you're taking on this information, and you may not even start expressing the meme until you have enough information to make you feel more confident. So you might start recognizing the meme before you express it. So you could re-describe all of this in a totally different way. So to some extent, that makes, I guess it weakens. I'm not a great philosopher of science, unlike some of the people on the stage. Uh, so it, maybe it weakens the, uh, the, the, its utility as a, as a mechanism because you could re-describe it another way. But for me, that's really clear. And one of the experiments I've been wanting to do, although again, I'm having trouble getting my head around how to do this, is to test whether it's true by saying, can we find out how much mimetic relatedness matters versus genetic relatedness by looking at when you're, you know, when you have, uh, how many more ideas do you need to have for someone to be willing uh, in common before, you, before people are willing to choose like a, you know, a cousin over a, a child or something like that. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting point. So, first of all, despite the introduction as a philosopher, I'm actually a geneticist. Okay. Uh, oh, my, my turn to philosophy was, is very recent. I'm a baby in terms of philosophy. But uh, my, fun, my, my initial training is in genetics. And to me, when I look at the history of the two disciplines or the two approaches, genetics on the one hand and mimetics on the other, uh, there are some stark contrasts, despite the analogy uh, that, that uh, gave rise to the whole idea of memetics. For instance, genetics started out basically in 1900. I mean, you can argue that Mendel, in fact, you can't argue, it is true that, <laughs> that Mendel was doing experiments before, but his experiments were forgotten, uh, and for, for very good reasons. He, did, he made a couple of bad decisions that uh, any budding scientist should try to avoid. First of all, he published on obscure, in obscure journals that nobody read. And second of all, he went for an, for an administrative career immediately afterwards. So his work was forgotten for a couple of decades as a result of that. When it was rediscovered in 1900, uh, genetics exploded. Like overnight, people were doing experiments. There were this, the discovery of mutations was you know, immediate. Uh, the, the, in different species, first in, in Drosophila and fruit flies, uh, and then it just, just spread like fire. In fact, genetics became initially one of the major uh, objections to Darwinian, the Darwinian theory of evolution because geneticists couldn't figure out how 
uh, things that have, like genes that have discrete effects, yes or no, yellow or green peas and stuff like that, can actually give uh, rise to long-term gradual evolution. And it took 20, 30 years to figure that one, that one out. So there was this explosion, it went on, on, the, on the market of ideas, so to speak, immediately. That doesn't seem to me the case in, in uh, uh, the case of memetics, uh, as, you, as you just heard. It's hard to even imagine how do you do experiments about memes. And part of the reason for that is because it's much di more difficult to pinpoint what a meme actually is supposed to be, as opposed to a gene. You are absolutely right that even in the case of genes, there's still a lot of discussion, and in fact, uh, Arguably, the term gene indicates an, a family of related things, not just one thing. There are some genes that are pretty clearly, obviously, genes. They, they are pieces of DNA, discrete pieces of DNA that code for a protein, that's easy enough. But then there are genes that don't code for proteins. Then there are genes that overlap uh, with, with each other. So there's all sorts of interesting stuff going on there. But none of that has actually caused experimental problems. You know, people, geneticists know how to deal with this thing, and they, they've done a marvelous job over the last uh, century, you know, 120 years of doing that. Gene, uh, memes, on the other hand, uh, they keep being this, this very vague thing that, you know, you, you think you have a finger on, on, on it, and then you say, no, but that's also a meme. But that is also a meme. Well, how do I experiment from things that go from a meme on the internet, you know, the funny little things that become popular because everybody uh, keeps uh, sending them around like, like you. Like me. Um, to, you know, a meme plex such as religion. It's, uh, it's itself. Is, it's such, such an incredible uh, spanning of, you know, orders and magnitudes of complexity. You don't find anything like oh, that in genes. I mean, Hillary. Yeah, so I think there's a bit more at stake here than you might think. So, I think the shift to thinking in terms of memes, and I'm not arguing, as it were, in favor of meme theory. I have my own account of what I think is going on in terms of our relationships between our concepts and the world. But I think that the shift to thinking in terms of memes means that it's not as if our words refer to stuff out there which are either true or false. That's not what's going on. What's going on is they provide us with a framework to operate in, and we can operate on that framework, and sometimes the framework works, sometimes it doesn't. And whether they are adopted or not is not a function, therefore, of whether they're true, it's a function of whether we find them useful in the context in which they're operating. So, in the context of genes and memes, we normally imagine the idea that the gene refers to something out there, don't we? That's how we think of the word. The word refers to something. There must be something that it's out there. And maybe our vocabulary is, oh, well, we turn it turns out to be a bit more difficult than that. Uh, there's not one thing, it's a group of things. But we imagine there's something out there which our conceptual framework, our theory, is pointing to. That's, our, that's the standard you know, model of how we think concepts in the world's work. We have concepts, they describe stuff, and we've either got it right or wrong. It's a bit like a crossword. Knowledge is a crossword puzzle. You know, it's some way out there, we've got to get the right combination to describe it. But maybe it's not like that at all. Maybe the relationship between our concepts and what's out there is, is totally different, that it's not a question of somehow pointing to the things that are out there and tick, yes, I've got that right, no, that's wrong. Instead, it's about creating models, metaphors. I use the word closure because I would describe what's out there as being open, and we close openness 
uh, with our sensations and our concepts. And we use those uh, closures in order to get things done. But they're not true or false in quite that way. It's a question of whether they are valuable and helpful to us or not. And genes have undoubtedly proved to be valuable in countless different ways. Now, that doesn't mean to say there is such a thing which is a gene. Most people imagine there is. The harder you look for a gene, the more you can't find it. And the reason is because that's not the relationship. That's not what's going on. It's a framework, a metaphor for you thinking about the world. And memes seem to me is another metaphor that, that Dawkins offered us. And in his, um, in his version of it, it has sort of consequences. I think some of those consequences are interesting. And the most significant consequence is that is that memes aren't true, they're just successful. And the, one of the puzzle, one last one, is that his meme, the word meme, has been staggeringly successful, hasn't it? In this sense, that everybody uses the word. Yeah. He, he developed this like 30 or 40 years ago, whenever it was, and now it's everywhere. So in terms of his own theory, meme theory, <laughs> in the way that it's used, has been immensely successful. Uh, but that doesn't mean to say that it's true. It just means it's been something that we found a useful idea to describe how things uh, operate. And if we can develop that in a scientific way to improve the way that we can understand culture, we'll alter the good. And maybe we can, maybe we can't. Right, interesting. Can I, can I uh, promote a, a conjecture here? So I think this is, I don't know how you guys feel. I think this is a really interesting panel. And I'm very much persuaded about this. Uh, well, I, 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 yeah, I think we're actually relatively on the same page about the, the, you know, the, 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 the extent of our realism concerning models and things. Um, but I, that this, I, I am persuaded that there's a problem that we don't have as rich of uh, experimental theory or experimental productivity yet from this theory. I still think it might be because it is so much more complicated to talk about the combining of information. And I observe that data science makes a lot of money out of figuring out how to combine information. So my conjecture is that if we ever did figure out a good way to, to quantify that, um, that that might help us a lot with our data taxing and social justice around data usage. And also that it may be that we should be looking for the other way around that you know, Lena Khan and the, and the people that are trying to figure out how to tax Amazon might actually hand us a tool that would help us get a better handle on uh, memetics. One yeah. of the questions that uh, I was going to raise was whether or not the sort of current state of internet culture actually demonstrates the power of this meme theory. And I feel like that's something that what you're sort of talking to. Well, that's an interesting conjecture, too. So the idea is that, uh, so one of the things I work on a lot is about how is it that um, digitalization ha alters uh, how we can govern and, and alters the nature of politics. Pe lots of people are asking, can we have democracy now that we have such an easy flow of uh, data and influence and, and power uh, across uh, transnationally, across borders? Um, so, so those are the kinds of uh, things we're worrying about. I had never really thought of it as uh, that just more generally that we're reifying intel uh, information into something. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but, but so the, it, it's a little, it's, it's um, tempting to say, yeah, memetic culture as in the internet yeah. version of it. Uh, it's, it supports the, the general theory. But does it really? I mean, all it shows is that certain very simple, often silly, 
ideas spread very rapidly yeah. um, in a particular medium. But we've known that before. It's, it's not like, you know, this, this hasn't surprised any, anybody. No. So to just add a, a label to it and say, oh, well, yeah, that's, that's a meme, uh, doesn't really help very much in our understanding. If now, if we had a way to look at the dynamic of these things and why they spread one way rather than another, why is it that some, if it becomes predictive, right? Uh, which of course, if it did, some people would make a lot of money uh, out of it, then, then I would be much more impressed. But if well, you just add a label, Okay, so to some extent, that's exactly what Cambridge Analytica and its, and its parent company, indeed, advertisers have always been making money out of. They're finding ways to communicate ideas to people that alter their behavior. So, so we could argue that that's already happening. But I didn't take what her question to be about you know, the, the cat things with a particular font on them. I, I, thought, I, thought, I thought the question was that as we have this new technology that affords us to have more uh, information, I mean, look, one of the things that's obsessing me lately, this is going to sound like a tangent, but it's that people that get progressive uh, glasses frames, that if you don't fight really hard, they cut out a whole lot of your reality and blur it all so that you can read your phone or your computer right in front of your face. So a lot of people are walking around like not caring about the world they're in, only caring about screens. You know, I find that like bizarre and so maybe that and maybe that is too. oh super dangerous in so many ways yeah if may i come back for a second to what you were saying about the the truth versus 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 models because i i actually go quite a bit uh, along with with your argument but but only up to a point or at least uh maybe you can clarify um, my thoughts about this. So it certainly is the case that scientific theories in general are models, as I, as I said, presumably of, an, of a reality out there, and yes, they are judged by us on the basis of whether they're useful models or not. And you know, genes are certainly a useful model. I agree that there is no such thing as a gene. Gene is a concept. It's, not, it's a human construct. Just like electrons are not a thing, they are a human construct that makes, help us make sense of a lot of phenomena that we can describe and quantify. What exists are not genes, they are bits and pieces of, of a certain kinds of molecule, DNA or RNA, that under certain conditions do things, certain things or don't do certain things. Those are the objects that appear to exist, but gene is a category that we superimpose on that. The only thing that worries me, however, about that account is that if we catch it only in terms of usefulness, right, um, because we want to rightly stay away from the concept of a truth with a capital T, um, we are still missing something. I mean, after all, these things are useful, not just because it's our taste or our arbitrary decision. They're useful because they are describing a world out there that is constrains things in a certain way, right? So uh, a concept wouldn't be useful if uh, by deploying that concept, I keep crashing against a reality that is at odds with, with that concept. Would you agree with that part? Yes, although I think, I mean, there are a couple of things that I would uh, take up from what you were saying. So you were wanting there to retain the notion that there are some objects which uh, aren't, uh, aren't models, which aren't, aren't our way of holding things, so molecules, um, uh, as if there's um, some bits of our description of the world which somehow escape from that sort of, uh, uh, that human cultural framework. So uh, I'm, uh, I would want to push you on that and say, uh, I don't think you're going to be able to get, get that 
in there that it'll turn out when you, when you look at it that those, those are just as cultural, uh, just as human as uh, things like genes and memes. So there isn't a bedrock on which you can then build the rest. The puzzle then, obviously, for me, there is, well, why does any of it work? You know, wh why is right. there some sort of utility? And, uh, uh, you know, I've spent some time trying to uh, provide an account of that, and uh, indeed, quite a few neuroscientists are now doing the same thing, people like David Eagleman, showing that the, the uh, and Donald Hoffman, indeed, the uh, cognitive scientist in California, both who've come to the view that we have to give up on the idea of reality in favor of uh, understanding our, um, our thought as a, as a way of holding the world, as a, as, a, as a patterning which enables us to move in. So one other thing, you, you were really talking about the issue about utility. I obviously wouldn't be arguing that we can erect utility as a thing in the way that truth is. That, that would have got nowhere. Right. Um, so, so I think the, the all, all that one means by utility is we find uh, that uh, a theory or an account of the world or a meme is effective for our particular use uh, at a particular time. And uh, there's no ultimate utility there. It's just... Uh, well, I find it has an outcome that I approve of. Can I, I, mean, there are, can I ask uh, a follow-up yeah. question on this? So, because I'm also, I've, I've never been on a panel with an anti-realist before, uh, so, so I'm, I'm still learning. Um, so, I totally agree that basically, not only do you know, science have models about the world, but that every intelligent being or intel intelligent entity is a model. It's 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 a set of abstractions. It's a set of pre pre uh, pre expectations that are there that allows it to to uh, convert you know the current context into some form of action. And that's basically what it is to be intelligent. But do you think that there's there's there isn't anything out there somewhere that all of these things are running around on that there's not a physical reality that that we're all models of. Or, or, or do you think that sort of that somehow we're constructing reality entirely and that reality is a meme? Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> yeah, that's uh, a good question. Good question. Right. So, yeah. so I don't, I mean, and indeed the people that I've mentioned there, Donald Hoffman does seem to actually take an idealist position of saying it's all in our heads. I, I don't take up that view. Okay. Uh, I think that there is stuff out there, absolutely. Uh, but I recognize the words stuff and out there are my words, and so there's some sense in which I, I can't quite say what that other stuff is, but I absolutely think there's stuff out there. And the reason why I, I went in terms of my vocabulary for the word openness was just to, to say, imagine we can't say what is out there, that's not what's going on in terms of a relationship between our models and the world. Um, imagine it is open and full, if you like, it's just, and we find ways of making patterns that enable us to intervene in this stuff, which is other than us. It's, you know, it doesn't have uh, human characteristics. The world is not a human characteristic. It's something other. And the puzzle then is how is that successful? Um, and one of the strange things is that uh, the more one thinks about it, the more it becomes uh, possible to give very good accounts of why it is that we don't have to uh, we don't have to assume that our models refer to things in order for them to be effective. Uh, we can use the same principles of observation and reason that have proved so successful in the rest of science, but we uh, were observing it within the context 
of the theory within the context of how we are understanding the world, rather than imagining that we, we are observing reality when, when we look at that. But let's, let's try to bring, up, bring this down to a uh, concrete, simple example. Here's a glass of water. The terms glass and water could actually be construed as models of a reality because a glass is not just that particular thing. It's, it's a concept, right? It refers to things that are made like that, but also that are longer, that may be a different color, they may be uh, made actually of different materials and so on and so forth. So glass actually is a concept. But it is referring to a very specific kind of, in this particular example, a very specific kind of physical thing that we know it's out there, as far as we can tell that anything is out I there. I also see the glass of You water. do see the glass. Thank so you. so <laughs> I, I would say, just so yeah. I would say, yeah, you can hold this as a glass, but you can also hold it as a weapon if I throw it. Sure. You could hold it as a transparent material. Sure. You could hold it as a collection of silicon atoms and other, other sure. atoms. You could hold it as a container. You could hold it as a vehicle for life if you need water. There's no limit to the number of ways you can hold that part of the world. And you're absolutely right that most of the time we imagine it's a glass. Well, but it's well, not a glass. Oh. It's all of these other different ways of holding that, which are, in fact, almost infinite in character. And we, we operate in this space in which we've reduced the uh, complexity and potential of the world to specific things as if all I've got here is a glass. First of all, I don't think that the number of descriptions of this thing is infinite or even near infinite. Second of all, some descriptions are far more apt than others. Yes, this is a weapon if I want to throw it, but it's a okay. really no ineffective fighting. weapon. No fighting, I did say I would take you all down. <laughs> it's a really ineffective weapon. It's not because it's not designed as a weapon, right? So the main use of this thing is in fact as a container for, for liquids so that we can drink. Yes, you can make a lot of other descriptions of it, not infinite, not, not, not one near is infinite, but you can. To some extent, of course, it is a simple agreement, verbal agreement between you know, human beings. They say, oh, we call that thing a glass because we have to communicate. If I uh, go and ask for a glass of wine and somebody gives me a, a, a revolver, then it's like, no, I'm sorry, that's not what I meant, right? Now, those descriptions are certainly arbitrary. There's no question about it. The, the only reason we call this a class is it's an arbitrary agreement. But the concept is useful. What I was going with this is the concept is useful in good part because it actually describes fairly accurately under many different situations a particular type of object which is, has a particular type of function or general function which I need for a certain reason under certain circumstances. That's, what I, that's all I meant when I said that reality constrains the way in which we, we find concepts useful or not. Because if you don't get that part, if you don't allow reality however you want to describe it, to make, to have that kind of constraint, then, then it becomes really, then we do go into idealism. And, I, and we don't want to do, go there, right? And I couldn't agree more. I think the way that we want to think about openness as constraint, yeah. it does provide constraint. It's just that our models never become the same as what's out there. That's all. Okay, well, I mean, I had another question, but it seems a little bit strange to throw it out there now in the last couple of minutes that we have before the end. Um, so, uh, I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Um, is how we think determined by evolution? You get two sentences each, max. No, I don't think it's determined by evolution. It is constrained by evolution. That was what I was going to say. Uh, 
but the, the, but I, I would also say that uh, that, that just to throw in something this about this notion about glasses uh, that uh, you know we could all be just drinking directly from the pitcher, and so the fact that 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 we have chosen to. Uh, go with a glass, probably is for reasons of cultural identity. We all think, you know, like historically it was a big deal to have these glasses and to decorate your house that way. But of course, there turns out to be a uh, selective advantage to limiting the amount of gene, of uh, disease molecule particles. And so that's the kind of thing, the kind of thing, again, that memetics can contribute. Um, you know, is the way we think uh, uh, a consequence of evolution? I think, I think that if you adopt an evolutionary theory way of thinking about it, then you are committed to that outcome because you have to account for why we are as we are. We are as we are because it's proved to be valuable for the species and ourselves, and that the way we think is a, is a product of that. So within evolutionary theory, and standing from that model, then I think we do need to conclude that um, the way we think is a product of evolution. Now, I think that there are some really valuable bits about evolutionary theory, but that conclusion is one of the things that I think should make us think it's not quite as straightforward as it looks. And that therefore, yes, we should pursue our evolutionary theories, we should pursue our genetic research, we should extend that model, but let's not imagine that it's the only way of thinking about how we are, because in just as the way we can have loads of different ways of thinking about what that is, we can think of loads of different ways of thinking about what it is to be human, and the evolutionary story is just one of them. That was more than two sentences, but thank you. It Hillary. was, apologies. <laughs> it was, that's all right. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. 